Hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Yeager. And I'm Lisa Carrico. We're program directors for Missouri Humanities. And we're so excited to bring you our latest episode of Eat, Think, and Be Merry. This podcast is part of our 2022 signature series. And throughout this year, we'll feature food thinkers and other special guests with exciting, inspiring, and downright delicious stories as we consider the role food plays in shaping our society, how it connects us to each other, to our own pasts and identities, and to the world around us. We invite you to feed your mind and join us around the table as we host conversations that explore Missouri's foodways and edible history to celebrate the breadth and depth of Missouri's cultural heritage, natural environment, and the relationship between food and the human experience. Welcome back to the Eat, Think, and Be Merry podcast. We're so excited to share this episode with you all. It's one that we really believe everyone will enjoy. We'll be touching on topics like soul food, the origins of barbecue, and the impact of African-American foodways. This episode also coincides with Missouri Humanities 2022 Momentum Gala, which took place on September 10th. Our annual gala is an opportunity each year to really celebrate the humanities in Missouri and the field's vital role in building a strong, thoughtful, and engaged society. This year's keynote speaker was Adrian Miller, known as the Soul Food Scholar, a lawyer turned food writer who has written three books on the impact of African-American foodways. We are pleased to have had the opportunity to interview Adrian for this very special episode. His keynote was just so engaging, and I'm so glad he agreed to do this podcast so more people can hear his story and his research. I completely agree. I loved what he had to say, and I feel like a lot of the foods we consider soul food or barbecue are foods that we're all quite familiar with, but maybe don't understand why some of them are so common now or how they came to be that way. Lisa, you did some really good research before we recorded this conversation. What were you most surprised to learn or most fascinated by? Thanks, Caitlin. I definitely learned a lot prior to my conversation with Adrian in researching his work, but I think I was most intrigued by his passion for research, his deep knowledge in the subject matter, but also his ability to make the conversation approachable and meaningful. And through his research, books, and presentations, he provides a necessary platform for stories that have been largely left out of the food movement narratives. It's fascinating. I think this topic and this conversation with Adrian truly embody the idea of connecting through food and with food, which is so much more powerful when we know the stories behind why we eat what we eat. So let's turn this over to your conversation. I'm Adrian Miller, the Soul Food Scholar. My tagline is dropping knowledge like hot biscuits. Born and raised in Denver, Colorado, which immediately loses me all street cred on the subject of soul food and barbecue. I win people back by telling them that my parents are from the South. Um, But I'm a lawyer by training, and then I was in politics for a while, and my current job is I'm the executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches which is about getting Christian denominations to get to know each other across their denominational lines. And then we build on those relationships to do social justice work. And I've developed this side hustle where I write about African-American food traditions, 
So I've written books on the history of soul food, uh, the history of African-American presidential chefs, and then the history of African-American barbecue. You mentioned that you um, were a lawyer and at various points in your time you worked for the Clinton administration and also for the Colorado governor. And it sounds like you have this uh, amazing resume of doing a lot of community work, as you just mentioned, with the churches. Um, so given your background in law and politics, what brought you into this world of culinary writing and history? Well, the short answer is unemployment. Okay. So I had just ended my stint in the Clinton White House. And I, at that time in my life, I wanted to be the senator from Colorado at some point. So I was trying to get back to my home state. Um, and I love DC. I was really wrestling with this. but wanted to get back to my home state and start my political career. But the job market was really slow at that time. And I was watching a lot of daytime television. I'm not even going to tell you what shows. And then in the depth of my depravity, I said, you know, I should read something. So I went to a local bookstore. And I'd always liked to cook. And so I was just browsing the cookbook section. And there was this book called Southern Food at Home on the Road in History. Um, it was a history of Southern food. So, you know, first of all, I didn't know those existed. I just thought they were just cookbooks. So the idea that somebody would write, um, like take a literary approach to food, that was completely new to me. Um, so I opened up the book and I re started reading it. And seriously, on page four, the author, John Edgerton, wrote that the tribute to black achievement in American cookery has yet to be written. So when I picked the book up, it was already out 14 years. So... I thought, well, that's interesting. And so I tracked him down on the internet. I purchased the book and then I tracked him down on the internet and wrote to him and said, Mr. Edgerton, I really love this book. Um, you know, you wrote this 14 years ago, this one sentence, do you still think this is true? And he said, you know, for the most part, nobody's taken on the full story. There's always room for another voice, so why not yours? So with no qualifications at all, except for eating a lot of soul food and cooking it some, that's what started me on the journey. That's amazing. You read this line, you were like, all right, challenge accepted. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know why, because I didn't have any qualifications to do it. Well, now you are considered a soul food scholar, um, and you've written three books, which you kind of alluded to those topics just a little while ago. Um, so I thought maybe we could break down some of these books. Um, the first one you published was Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time, which won the 2014 James Beard Foundation Book Award for Reference and Scholarship and the Black Caucus of the American Library Association 2013 Honor Book of Nonfiction. So how do you define soul food and when and how did that term soul food start being used and why? So um, unfortunately, soul food has become shorthand for all African-American cooking. So I try to find every opportunity to really break that down. So I consider soul food to be one of the African heritage cuisines that um, emerged in the United States. And to me, it is the cuisine of the African-American migrants who left the South and went to other parts of the country during the Great Migration. So it's really a cuisine of movement. And the reason why I, I um, break that down is because when you think about migrants, immigrants, whatever, people on the move, when they get the, to the new place, you try to recreate home. And if you can with the exact same foods, you do. But often you get to a new place, it's different climate, different availability of foods. and so. You're, you're 
taking it's it, like the menu that you were used to necessarily gets condensed and then you're bringing in elements from new people in that area from different parts of the world and so this new thing kind of emerges similar to the old thing but kind of new um, and I, I, I make I stress to people that soul food is really the bringing together of the culinary techniques and ingredients and traditions of three places in the world West Africa Western Europe and the Americas and this all comes together in the American South um, in terms of you know foods the way I wrote my book on on soul food is I created a representative menu just to give people an idea of the foods and the things that I write about soul food are going if you're familiar with southern food they're going to sound very similar you know fried chicken greens black eyed peas cornbread peach cobbler those kind of things so you kind of alluded to this um, but so soul food is rooted in african-american history and traditions um, could you tell us a little bit more about that and why and kind of what were the beginnings of some of the kinds of foods and ingredients and recipes that became known as soul food so enslaved Africans came to the Americas. They weren't a blank slate. They had cultural memory of a lot of things. Cooking was one of them. And so we know that from certain parts of West Africa, where most people of African heritage in the United States, that's where we trace our roots, um, they had traditions of uh, essentially the typical meal was some kind of savory soup, stew, or sauce served alongside or on top of some kind of starch. And there were various starches, so you had rice country, there were also um, grains and cereals that were many, like sorghum and millet. And then you had uh, areas that were based on root crops. So yams, and then later plantains and cassava and sweet potatoes as they get introduced. So the ways to prepare those things by either deep frying, stewing um, for a long period of time, those kind of traditions come over. And during slavery, uh, one way that slaveholders displayed their power is they controlled the amounts of food that people got. So once a week, typically, um, enslaved people were given measured amounts of food, uh, usually at five pounds of some starch. It could be rice, sweet potatoes, but usually cornmeal, because that was the most readily available. You know, maize, mm -hmm. corn was um, a native crop in the Americas. Then you have um, a couple of pounds of either smoked, salted, dried, or pickled meat. It was usually pork because uh, pigs were so easy to raise, and um, maybe just a jug of molasses, and that's it. So enslaved people had to figure out how to subsist by gardening, foraging, hunting, and fishing during their leisure hours, which were scarce, because um, most they were primarily here to um, forced to do work, and so there's very little time for them to do these other things, but they had to do that because slaveholders weren't Slaveholders were only interested um, in their survival to the extent that they could keep them alive to get the maximum amount of work. Um, and, and attitudes towards nourishing the enslaved varied amongst slaveholders. Some were um, willing to just work their people to the, you know, to the bone to death and then get new enslaved people, or try to have enough uh, enslaved children born on their um, plantation so that the workforce was replenished. So all of this is coming together in the South, but we're, there are obviously West African culinary techniques that are being used, but then the enslaved are forced to cook for their slaveholders, and so that's how European techniques come into play. And then there was a lot of cultural exchange with Native Americans um, to learn about local plants and how to cook certain things. And so all of this is coming together in the plantation South. 
And how do you feel like this kind of accumulates now into like modern society and people's love to go and eat soul food? So um, I think it's a lot of it is just cultural memory because there are a lot of narratives about soul food. Not all of them are positive. Um, one powerful narrative is that slow, uh, soul food is just slave food and not worthy of celebration. And so it's this notion of taking the scraps of food that white people didn't want and then making that edible. So there's two departure points from that. So some people use that as a way to critique soul food and say, well, you know, why are you celebrating what white people don't want? That's basically literally digesting white supremacy. But then others will say, no, that's a sign of resiliency and ingenuity, right? The fact that we could take something that was just considered cast off and make it delicious and something that people want. So a lot of, it just depend, it depends on what kind of opinion you have. I think the people that enjoy soul food today cling to the more to the ingenuity and resiliency part. And then, you know, let's just face it, a lot of soul food is delicious. It is. Um, <laughs> but I think for, for people eating it today, um, there, there usually is some memory of a caregiver or just somebody in their life um, who made this food well and nourished them. Because a, a lot of food memories are triggered by you know, feelings of nostalgia and, and things like that. And it's just interesting to see the various iterations of soul food today. Because in addition to the traditional, you've got health conscious, which right now I think the most energy you're seeing is in the vegan and vegetarian space. I was gonna say there's a great place in St. Louis that is doing vegan soul food. Yeah, that's where you're seeing a lot of the energy right now. Um, and you've got upscale soul food where it, the emphasis is on heirloom vegetables, heritage meat and presentation. Uh, and then you've got a lot of f fusion as well. Like people are encountering other people from around the world and they're creating things like soul food egg rolls called soul rolls, which is an egg roll filled with soul food ingredients. Okay, this one's new for me. <laughs> You've never heard of that? No, I haven't heard of it. Wow, do you feel like something's missing in your life? Uh, yeah, I'm gonna see if anybody's doing that. Nobody's doing that here. <laughs> I'm really shocked to hear that. Uh, and then uh, there's a guy in Atlanta who calls himself the Blacksican, um, and he's doing collard green quesadillas. Okay. So you're, you're finding a lot of fun stuff like that happening. Okay. I like it. So um, I'd love to touch on your second book, um, The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. Let's talk about some of the themes present in the book and what your inspiration was for writing about this topic. Sure. And let me just update it. it you, I could, you could say all the way to the Bidens because President Trump and President Biden have had African-Americans cooking for them. So, you know, um, and I didn't know this. And as soon as I delved into the archives, I was like, oh, duh. But um, every president has had an African-American cooking for them in some capacity. And so the President's Kitchen Cabinet was really the first collective biography of these people. Um, because some of them have been written about, but nobody had ever tied the whole story together. So really it was to show um, how important they were to nourishing our first families but then also to show, and we, we don't have a lot of evidence of this because there's such a veil of secrecy around White House staff, understandably. Yeah. Um, but there are examples where these cooks, as well as other African-Americans on the White House domestic staff, um, resident staff, gave our first families a window on black life that they may not have had. And so um, I wanted to tell that story and just show how it changed over time. 
And so a lot of the early White House, or presidential cooks, I should say, because Washington was pre-White House, um, they were enslaved people because we had so many slaveholding presidents um, early in our history. And so if you are a slaveholding president, um, and one thing that people don't know is prior to Truman, presidents paid for their cooks and staff out of their own pocket, which is one reason why we have so many wealthy presidents, right? Um, notable examples were Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses Grant, who really didn't have um, enslaved people or servants on that level. So if you're a slaveholding president and you're cheap, you don't want to pay for a cook on the open market, right? You're going to bring your enslaved cook, who you know makes the food that you want well, bring that person. And so we have a number of, of cases of enslaved cooks just being confined to the White House grounds, um, and they're there to work. And in the early years of the White House, I don't know if you've ever been to D.C. Um, I have, just recently. Yeah, so you'll, you'll resonate with this. You were there in the summer, right? Uh, I was just, yeah, just there a couple weekends ago. So D.C. is a reclaimed swamp. And so uh, in the early, its early history, uh, White House workers were getting tropical diseases regularly. Oh, wow. So malaria, things like that. The White House basement where the kitchen is flooded after rainstorms. And there was a lot of vermin down there and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, we, we think of this White House and the White House kitchen as maybe the epitome, right? The ideal kitchen, but it wasn't that so, so much that for enslaved people. So I wanted to show that um, and just show how that position changed over time. And um, to bemoan the fact that we have not had an, uh, an executive White House chef who's African-American since Lyndon Johnson. And the, the, the reason why that's really poignant is before you get to the Kennedy administration, the typical White House cook slash chef is a black woman. Like if you just go through the span of time and just put everybody in a room, most of them would be black women. And they dominated the kitchens. And then this changes in the 1960s because, and I'm not saying this is racist, this is just a change in tastes. Um, First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy wanted to elevate White House food. She had a French vibe. And so she wanted to start hiring chefs who had that culinary knowledge and technique. So as black chefs would either retire or kind of be encouraged to retire, she started bringing in um, primarily white men um, who are European chefs. And that's kind of just stuck then. Yeah, that's, that's stuck until we get to Hillary Clinton um, First Lady Hillary Clinton, who does not really talk about this that much, but she did a lot to change the trajectory of food in the White House because she's really the first one to start saying, and, and people like Julia Child and others had been on the White House's case for decades, um, but she's the first one to say, okay, we're going to start celebrating American food. Uh, and so George H.W. Bush had a French chef um, and then uh, when the Clinton comes in, and, and when the, and there was an American chef for a short period of time, but it was primarily a French chef. When the Americans come in, they get a, an American chef, um, and since his name was Walter Scheib, and he served until the second term of George W. Bush, and since then, interestingly, has been a Filipina named uh, Chef Cristetta Comerford, who's been there ever since. And so she's got a really long tenure. Um, I'm actually a little surprised that she's still there, um, but she's got one of the longest tenures now as an executive chef. And I, I actually have to do the calculation because the only other person I know who has served as long 
or maybe just a little bit longer, was a guy named Henry Holler, who served from Lyndon Johnson all the way to Reagan, uh, and then retired. He, he died a couple of years ago. Uh, so. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I know, especially with Michelle Obama, kind of had a huge health and food like initiative as well. So I guess I would have thought maybe she would have brought in a different kind of chef with all of that. But Well, she did, but the person wasn't African-American. So they brought in a guy named Sam Cass, who um, the way I understand it, I think he was a chef at the school where their kids went. But she brought him in to be the personal cook for the family as well as like this kind of policy advisor type. So that's the first time that's ever happened. But um, Jacqueline Kennedy created a upstairs kitchen uh, in the White House after it got renovated. And so she turned Margaret Truman's bedroom into a, another kitchen and a pantry because, and a dining space because she wanted a more intimate space because they used to dine, the family used to eat in the state dining room and she just thought it was too cavernous. So she wanted a, a smaller dining space. So from that point, um, a president could have a second cook cook meals for the family just there, and then the White House executive chef cooks for everybody else, right? And like when guests come, the state dinners, all that kind of stuff. Or you could have that person do everything. It just is up to that. So the Obamas were the first since Lyndon Johnson, who had an African-American woman playing that role, to have like a a second chef just cooking for the family. That's really fascinating. Is there anything about this book, like while you were researching it, um, that surprised or interested you the most about this history? Um, I guess the thing that was, and again, this is a dumb moment, is just how extensive African-Americans had been in the White House kitchen because not knowing about it, I just had assumed that it was all high-end European cooking. Um, and that African-Americans did not have experience. So now I know the enslaved chef for Thomas Jefferson, he paid for him to get, take three years of classical culinary training in France. And so he was as you know, capable as any French chef at that time. Um, and how there's been this rivalry between European cooking, primarily French chefs and American chefs, and how um, black women in America have epitomized American cooking. And so there's this tension, and it's kind of the, it's, it's one of the longstanding tensions in our democracy in that we want our presidents and our first families to be exceptional people, almost superhuman, but we also want them to be a lot like us, <laughs> right? And so the most successful presidents have been the ones that have been able to negotiate both sides of that at the right time. And I think the savviest presidents have figured out that food is an easy way to do that. Yeah, it's, just, it's just like low-hanging fruit. And the reason why more presidents don't do it, I don't know. Because um, you don't really see President Biden doing it the way that the Obamas did. And everybody's different. But um, it just makes that president more relatable. I mean, we know a few things about President Biden. We know, we know that he's pretty much a blue-collar diet kind of guy. He likes spaghetti with meatballs. He likes Jenny's ice cream, um, you know, things like that. But um, I think the presidents who don't use food are missing a real opportunity. Yeah, I mean, food's an easy connector and kind of like we were just talking about, food has a lot of memory behind it, yeah. a lot of traditions and, you know, cultural yeah. heritage. And 
That's why all of these candidates on the, on the um, campaign trail, that's why they're flipping pancakes at the county fair <laughs> and eating all this, all this Ice stuff. scoop and ice cream, right. yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, I think this is a nice segue into kind of talking about community, especially what you talk about in uh, Black Smoke, your third book. So Black Smoke, African-Americans in the United States of Barbecue um, across America. There's a pure love and popularity for barbecue cooking. Um, people love to talk about it. Uh, here in Missouri, we're proud to brag about our burnt ends in Kansas City. Um, and your book dives deep into this history of barbecue. Um, and a part of that is that community um, segment. So could you Tell us a little bit about the book and what were some of the biggest surprises you learned in your extensive research for it? Uh, again, another dumb moment, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, the Native American foundation of barbecue. So the earliest kind of depiction of barbecue we get is uh, Columbus in the early 1490s. Uh, his crew is in the Caribbean and they come to an island and they see this raised platform made of sticks and there are fish, uh, vegetables, and something they don't really recognize all cooking on this and over a very slow fire, but there are no humans around. So obviously somebody built this and started it, but they're off doing something else. So that gives you an idea that this was very low fire, right? Because whoever started it wasn't worried about it burning. So uh, as a true sign of things to come, Columbus and his crew helped themselves to all the food without asking. Um, and then when the Native Americans, thanks for catching that. Then when the Native Americans uh, show up, um, you know, they're hospitable and they're relieved because the thing that the disgusted um, Columbus and his crew that they left alone were iguanas. And for the indigenous people, those were the, that was the delicacy. So they were glad that those were still there. They're like, you guys can have the fish and vegetables. We, we want the iguanas. So barbecue, the word is a game of historical telephone. So barbacoa in Spanish is an approximation of what the indigenous people were calling the framework of sticks, not the food or the cooking process. And then barbacoa becomes barbecue in English. So there's all these wild ideas of where the word barbecue comes from, but most historians agree with this linguistic chain. So um, the thing that was always curious to me is the story goes from that point is that, okay, Columbus and other Europeans see this and they decide, they eventually make their way to the American South and they bring this type of cooking to the American South, add their animals, and then we have Southern cooking or Southern barbecue. But the thing that doesn't make a lot of sense is the way that Southern barbecue emerges is completely different cooking process than the raised platform. It's a pit in the ground that's a few feet deep, a few feet wide, Fill, uh, filled with hardwood, coal, wood, hardwood that's burned down to coals. And then whole animals were um, killed, butchered, and butterflied, and poles were stuck through the side of them. And then they were cooked over this, um, th these coals, and somebody had to flip them periodically, and somebody had to sauce them with vinegar and spices to keep it moist. And so that's very different. So I'd always wonder, well, well how do you get from that raised platform to this shallow pit. And um, I started looking at early travel accounts of Europeans to find out what did they observe of barbecue, what we call barbecue now, what, what precursors did they observe in the American South. So this gets tricky because there's three groups of people in play. 
um, just like the three foundations of soul food, barbecue has the same. You've got West Africans, you've got Western Europeans, and you've got the indigenous people in the Americas. Out of those three groups, Europeans were the only ones about writing stuff down. So we're relying on European observations to see this. And that empowers, right? Because it's whatever the white people want to point out, how they interpret it, that's what we take away. So what we see is that Native Americans were digging shallow pits and they would have wood and rocks in the pit, and which is ingenious because you'd set the wood on fire but the rocks would stay warm. And then they would uh, kill animals, butcher them, and just lay strips of that meat either on the rocks and wood directly or they would lay sticks across it and then put the meat on top of the sticks, but really close to that heat source. And so Europeans brought their meat cooking traditions to that and um, West Africans brought their meat cooking traditions to that. And so that collaboration forced in many ways puts us on the road to Southern barbecue. So where indigenous people may have been doing it to cook it slowly and preserve it, to create jerky or something else to eat that meat later, this, you've, got, you've got two things, right? You've got preservation, slow cooking, and then you, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got quick grilling, which Europeans did. And so barbecue emerges as this intermediate type of cooking that you just don't see any place else. Now, I gotta tell you, um, I wanted to prove that barbecue was West African. I wanted to cross my arms and say Wakanda forever <laughs> after I did it. But I'm, now not everybody's like me, I'm bound by evidence. And um, you just don't see this type of cooking in anywhere in West Africa. Um, and that, I've gotten crosswise with a lot of people. So I got white people coming at me saying, no, this is, this is uh, you know, was in Europe thousands of years ago. There's nothing special about it. And then I got black people saying, no, it's West African. Um, and you're whack for not saying that. <laughs> And so, you know, um, I, for both of them, I have the same. Oh, and then the other thing is, and this has become more fashionable now by all kinds of people, is to say that barbecue is just cooking meat over wood. And everybody around that, around the world does that. So for the, the white dudes from Europe and the pro-black Africanists, um, I tell them, hey, look, you, you guys have a fundamental historical challenge. Um, for the ones who are from Europe, Europeans are not talking about this until they go to the Americas. Mm -hmm. So if this was around for thousands of years, how come we don't see it in Europe until people go to the Americas? For they essentially bringing it back with them. Right, right, in, in, a, in a weird form, but yeah, they bring yeah. it back. Um, and then for the, the ones that are saying Africa is the source, you have Europeans in West Africa a good 100 years before they get to the Americas. So if this type of cooking was in West Africa, how come nobody points that out? There's not one illustration, there's not even one journal entry about that. All of the people that support the argument about the West African provenance of barbecue are looking at 19th century sources. So that's like looking at something now and saying this is the way they ate in the 19th century for us to do that. So it's just whack. There's no, there's no um, evidence of that. I leave the window open just because I'm a gracious guy, even though I know they're wrong. <laughs> but um, I just don't see any, any proof of that. And then um, for the people that say that this is just how everybody cooks around the world, that's not true because we don't see that around the world. And then the other thing is why, are, why is everyone around the world coming here to learn how to do this type of cooking? 
Um, so I, I just think there's something exceptional about Southern barbecue, um, the way it developed in the American South. And then the last thing I'll say is, what is so wrong about saying that we owe a culinary debt to indigenous people? Who showed, right? Yeah. <laughs> Why is that so wrong? Yeah. I, I think it's when people get something in their mind, they want to stick with that, even if, if proven differently. Um, something I also think was interesting, uh, I listened uh, in an interview where you talked about um, reading through thousands of oral histories while preparing for your soul food book. And then through that, you also saw lots of stories about barbecue. Could you kind of talk about where you got these stories and how they kind of fit into this narration and all these untold stories that may not otherwise be preserved, so. So the, the big body of knowledge that I tapped into was from the Federal Writers Project in the 1930s conducted interviews of formerly enslaved people. And uh, this was part of the broader Federal Works Progress and the whole idea was to get people to work and so brilliantly, the Roosevelt administration said, well, let's get writers to work. And so, um, you know, they talked to a lot of formerly enslaved people. So um, these things are, are these, these interviews are so dramatic. Um, there's the whole range of human experience there. Um, I wish that we could have everybody in the country read them because people, you know, you learn about high school, in high school you learn about slavery and you get a general sense that it was bad. Now, not everybody agrees it's bad, but that's the sense you get. But there's really no details of the contours of daily life for these people. And I'm, I'm just not gonna mince words. The, the sadism that existed under slavery, you just see pure evil and it was commonplace. And, um, but out of that, you see, you see joy, you see people trying to maintain their family life construct a life, um, gain skill in certain things. And, and barbecue was one of those things where when African-Americans had time to themselves, it was something that people gravitated to. Now, it could be after some form of spiritual practice, people came together in community and barbecue did that. Um, but a lot of times when you see people at leisure, you know, for most of the year, because with the South, with the warm temperatures and stuff, you could barbecue for a much longer period than you could at other places. We see barbecue. And um, we know that barbecue ultimately becomes dangerous because some of the uh, near successful slave rebellions were reportedly planned over barbecues as people were hanging out. And it got to the point where you had white newspapers editorializing, hey, we got to stop black people from barbecuing because this is dangerous, right? or we got, we got to monitor them and supervise them, which is an interesting um, notion because if you fast forward, I don't remember a few years ago, Barbecue Becky, mm -hmm. who the, the African-American guy was going to light up a grill in the park, but he was, he was technically breaking the rules because it, but she calls uh, the police on him. And so this idea of white supervision mm -hmm. of black leisure activity still remains in some ways. And so we see barbecue as a way to build community because it was whole animal cooking. Um, you know, this, this notion of eating like a, a slab of ribs or a pork shoulder, that comes much later in our history. It was whole animal cooking and there was no refrigeration. So if you're gonna cook, if you're gonna do barbecue, you, you have to have a lot of people because you could feed a lot of people with that. And, and really the two leaders, community leaders that figure this out quite effectively are preachers, and politicians. 
they're like, oh, I can, I can get a lot of people together, maybe get them to do what I want them to do. <laughs> like barbing, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, you see, and so um, you see that, um, we see evidence in some of these oral histories of the Native American influence because rather than calling it barbecue, you have some people that say cooking the Indian way. Um, and then you have uh, a lot of African Americans talking, speaking um, to their Native American heritage. You know, they would say, I'm part Crow, or my grandmother was Cherokee, or... So, you know, um, the one thing that I never found that I wanted to, which would have been the Holy Grail, is I just wanted some account of Native Americans and uh, African Americans side by side making barbecue in the 1600s. That would have just... Sealed the deal on... It would have sealed the deal. <laughs> but there's, there's inferences here and there, because, you know, you'll have... And I write about some of these people in my book. There was one guy, he's like, yeah, my great-grandfather barbecued and he was full-blooded crow. And he taught my, great-grandfather taught my grandfather, who taught my father, who taught me, right? So we're, we're relying on this report, you know, this reported heritage by somebody being interviewed. Um, and the, the other thing that's tricky about the interviews, there's two things. One is, most of these people are quite old. You know, this is 1930s. And so most people were in their 80s and 90s. And I don't know about you, but I can barely remember a lot of stuff. Um, and then also you had a white interviewer coming in uh, to these black homes. And so there was uh, understandably a, a bias there was a bias on the um, interviewer's part. There was also suspicion mm -hmm. from the subjects because some were like, hey, are they, are they trying to get some information so they can bring slavery back? Um, you know, they didn't know how this information was going to be used. So we have to, we, with all of that, we have to take that into account when we look at this. But still, there's this magnificent body of knowledge. And I'm fortunate to be in a community, Denver, Colorado, that has a world-class library. And so they had a bound volume of all of these interviews. So I could just go there after work and on the weekends just to tell you how intense I am. And just sit well, down. you love the research. Yeah. Oh, no, I love that. If somebody would just pay me to do that, I would be happy to do that. Um, and so I just, I just read through all of them, and then I indexed them for every reference to food. Wow. But also, like, food, again, such an intricate part of our lives that a lot of these stories contained food stories, right? They contained food stories, references to food. And, and, you know, a lot of people talked about the controlled amount of foods they got from the slaveholder, because that... That was such an intense display of power, right? Especially when you're talking about people who are being worked to death and are chronically hungry. You know, to control their food um, is, is a huge display of power. And so um, there was a lot of bitterness and memory around that. But then you see, uh, you see joy, um, pleasure from these immense feasts that would happen when the crop was harvested or Christmas or special holidays. Um, so they would talk about that, and, and a lot of them gave recipes in their interview. Yeah. They would just describe how you make something. And you have, what, like 21, 22 recipes in the book as well? Yeah, 22 recipes in the Soul Food book. Soul yeah, in the um, President's book, I, I can't remember. It was like around 20. All my books have around 20 recipes. I like that. It makes it unique to the food writing where people can also make these recipes if they choose to. Yeah, but can I just tell you, that's the most, if I could write a book without those, I would love to. 
<laughs> well, next challenge for your next book. Um, well, something I thought was neat too um, about the book and what you were saying about if you're gonna cook a whole animal, you want it for a large group of people and that's in its own, its own skill. Um, but you kind of talk as we approach the Civil War and emancipation that you have these highly specialized people who are trained in the art of barbecue and then people start to want to source these people for events. Could you talk a little bit about the switch over? Yeah, so I call these barbecue freelancers and really the only switch is that they they were free to work when they wanted to so before they were forced to do this stuff but um by the time time you get to the early 19th century it's just well understood that if you want good authentic barbecue to lose, use a term that we use today um, you would have an african-american cook it and um blackness and barbecue get wedded by that time so after after emancipation um, you have all these African-Americans who have a marked advantage over anyone else on knowing how to do this. And there was an, a marked um, appetite for Southern barbecue around the country. And so these people were put on trains, stagecoaches, boats, to places like Boston, Denver, uh, you know, California to do authentic Southern pit barbecue. And interestingly, you know, quite a few people stayed in the place where they were brought to. Because I'm like, why would I go back to the South? Um, and so at the same time that you have these barbecue freelancers doing their thing around the country, I tell people that they were barbecue's most effective ambassadors. Um, and it was really only until you see a few references to white men and barbecue in the 1870s and stuff, but it was really not until the 1890s that you see white men being celebrated for their roles in barbecue. But the white men who are celebrated have an all-black workforce. So, you know, there'd be these paintings or illustrations where you have all the black people doing the work and you have some white dude in a top hat. He's just like pointing at stuff. You have no idea if he knows what he's doing, but he's the one that gets all of the love mm -hmm. for the barbecue. And that kind of, could you talk a little bit about representation since then and kind of how that did switch from the white barbecuer or and where we kind of are now is there enough representation that's given love to the african-americans for this so uh even with the advent of some white men being known for barbecue in the 1890s uh, there was a short period of time where you had a floodgates of all kinds of people into barbecue and you saw a lot of white people get into barbecue in the 1910s and then interestingly in the 1920s you see a lot of these barbecue joints going up for sale they didn't know what they're doing. Um, so there, there's a reestablishment of African-American dominance starting in the 1920s and 30s all the way into the 1980s and then in the 1990s you start to see a shift and I believe the shift is because of food media. So with the advent of cable television all of a sudden you have focused channels and programming just on food. So mainly the Food Network, right? But PBS started to do more food pro, uh, programming and other things. And before the 1990s, if you did any kind of show on barbecue across the country in the United States and you didn't have a black person, people were like, what's wrong with you? What, what, what are you doing? And now it's the complete opposite. Uh, so my argument is, is that the people that were doing the food programming in the 90s 
and coincidentally, there was a, a sharper rise in kind of interest in regional American cooking and barbecue and Southern food was part of that. Rather than showing the diverse world of barbecue, they just focused on white dudes. So you start to see a marked change in programming. And as, as, as more and more foodies who are another group of people intensely interested in food, they've got disposable income, so they'll, they'll travel. Um, for you know, and they're asking two questions: What's this thing called barbecue, and where do I get the good stuff? And food media, print, TV, whatever, keeps pointing people to the white dudes. So that by the time you get to 2010, you know you've got a show like Barbecue Pitmasters, which predominantly has white people. The Food Network, which um, had a lot of barbecue programming. In 2004, they decided to go whole hog into barbecue programming. And I'll just give you a perfect example. And this is really what spurred me to write the book. I was thinking about writing it anyway, but this really made me do it. So I'm sitting there watching the Food Network and there was a, a show that came on, Paula Dean's Southern Barbecue. And I said, you know what? Let me just watch this because I just wanna know who, the, who they point out as the, you know, the real leading lights barbecue right now maybe i'll learn something about southern barbecue because i don't live in the south so just you know just what's the current state of southern barbecue so i watched this show 60 minutes later the credits are rolling no black people so i'm sitting there thinking two things i'm like first of all how does this even happen and then the second thing i'm thinking well maybe i got it wrong maybe it was paula dean's scandinavian barbecue <laughs> sponsored by alabama white sauce Fair. um <laughs> And so I was like, well, maybe this is an anomaly. So I started looking at other newspapers, magazines, TV shows, and it was the same thing. And I can't take all the credit, but thanks to, to my work and others, we are starting to see the tide turn. Mm -hmm. um, you're starting to see more representation in TV now. You're starting to see African-Americans who barbecue getting cookbook deals, which um, Rodney Scott, who's a barbecue guy out of South Carolina, he has a great cookbook, um, Rodney Scott's, well, I forgot what it's called, but I think it's maybe Rodney Scott's barbecue cookbook. Um, his cookbook was the first cookbook by an African-American barbecue professional in how many years do you think? Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with 12, something crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> You're gonna go with 12? I'm gonna go with 12. Up. Oh. 20. 25 close, 30. Wow. 30 years. Now think about all the books on barbecue that have come out in that time, year after year after year, all white dudes. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so we're seeing more books. And then the other thing which I had play a role, I did play a role in, is um, in Kansas City there's something called the American Royal. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a competition, but it's, American Royal is bigger than the competition. They're like an agricultural center. And so they started a barbecue hall of fame in 2010 or 11. And when I paid attention, they had 30 inductees. How many do you think were African-American? Zero or one? One. <laughs> and it was Henry Perry, who was the acknowledged godfather yeah, of cancer. But all of these brothers and sisters that could have been given some love, not acknowledged. So I'm happy to say that since I've been on the board, so I called them out in an editorial in the Kansas City Star. And to their, to their credit, they reached out to me and said, OK, you know what? You've got a point we'd like you to help us. So I've joined the, uh, the nominating committee that helps um, usher the process. And, and the last three classes have been very diverse. 
um, with representation from across the country. And I'm very thrilled to say that in a few weeks, we are going to induct a new category. It's called the Impact Award. And that category is going to go to unsung black barbecue cooks. So all these people who never got named, um, who did the work, and were appreciated in their time, obviously, but they just never got real love. We're going to give them a shout out. Okay, well, good. This is Missouri. This is Kansas City. Thank you. That's awesome. It's good to know that that's coming from the state. Yep. So. Um, I, well, this is a good segue into kind of this turning of the tide of giving more representation to African Americans in barbecue. But, you know, all of these books are about foodways and black and African American foodways. So why is it so necessary, so important to highlight African American foodways and to share the history and cultural heritage of food? Well, it's important to highlight because um, if we don't, it's going to be lost. And we've already seen that happen in so many ways. And um, it's also to point out that African Americans have made significant contributions to American culture, um, especially our food. Um, the way that Latino cooks dominate commercial kitchens today, that was African Americans 100 years ago, or even you know, 50 years ago. Um, and so people, I don't think people realize that now. Um, commercial kitchens, private cooking, the White House, military, I mean, black people were cooking, because people thought of cooking differently. There were, there were always the high-end European chefs, you know, that were celebrated, but cooking was not a celebrated thing. Cooking was servitude. And given the racial dynamic of our country, people's like, oh yeah, black people cook because that's servitude. And so um, it's just not, it's not the foodie thing it is now. And so um, that has led to a lot of food shaming outside of the black community and inside when it comes, you know, food shaming. And so I think um, celebrating can change the narrative. And, um, and I want a realistic narrative because it was servitude. A lot of this was connected to slavery and people had fewer options besides cooking. I mean, I can talk about my own dad. Um, he, he, he volunteered to go in the military uh, and he was in the Air Force and they assigned him to be a cook. So he got out of there as fast as he could. So, um, so I, wanna, I want to have people understand that dynamic, but then I also want to have people understand the contributions. And it's only when we um, can sift out the good and the bad, the negative and the positive, that we can start telling these stories. Because I, I tell people all the time, every aspect of black culture, how we walk, talk, dress, entertain, play sports, worship, all of that's gone global except our food. And so the question is why? And I think it's because we don't have enough people in our culture who are celebrating this. Like if, if our significant cultural tastemakers just started talking about African-American food, it would blow up. Yeah, I love in St. Louis, I think it's still coming up, but we're having a, there's a lot of up and coming black chefs in St. Louis and there's a, like a whole little festival that's gonna be around like black foods in St. Louis. Oh, nice. So I feel like that's really getting the highlight the work that's being done here and kind of throwing that tribute back yeah. so but it, it's gonna be it's gonna be a long journey because the the association with slavery is strong and that's always viewed as a negative 
And so if, if we can get to a point to acknowledge slavery, but then acknowledge what people did under those circumstances, their strategies for survival, um, how some became quite famous and wealthy, even with all of these obstacles thrown their way, I think, I think there's, there's a lot of good stuff that we can still celebrate, even under the most horrific circumstances. For sure. So um, on, on your landing page on your website, to kind of go with the sharing of stories and preserving these stories and celebrating them, uh, you have a quote that says, sharing food stories that unite the world. Uh, this notion very much embodies the humanities in our current signature series, Eat, Think, and Be Merry, Missouri's Foodways and Edible History. So in your own words, how does food bring us together? Well, we all got to eat. <laughs> and um, I think in our society, there are just fewer and fewer spaces where people from all walks of life can come together. And the table is one of the few of them left. And um, I think most people, if you're somewhat social, I mean, if you're an introvert, maybe this doesn't happen. But um, m in most circumstances, when you sit down at a table with someone and you're eating, conversation usually flows. Um, because at the table, uh, you're all equal and you're experiencing something together. And um, I think that's why there was so much energy in the Jim Crow South to keeping people from eating together. Because how can you not recognize the humanity of the person sitting across from you at the table? Um, even if there are some distinctions, right? Um, you still, there's a level of humanity that's recognized. And so um, I think if we can get to a space where we can create, to use a phrase from African-American faith traditions, create a welcome table a space where people feel like they can come, be themselves, uh, and talk about things, I think that will do us a, a lot of good. But there are two things that really have to happen. Uh, first, that space has to be inviting, and people, feel like, people need to feel like they can come into it. And then, you know, it's part of being humans is like we have conflict. We don't always agree on everything. So the question is, like, how do you disagree with somebody but still hold that tension and you're not going to get up from the table and never speak to them again but still hold that tension and just say okay you're a human being I'm still going to relate to you we disagree on this thing but there's, there's common ground on other things um, and I, I haven't cracked that nut well I feel like if anybody's going to crack that nut it's going to be you I hope so <laughs> We're going to take just a second here to give a little context before we delve into this next question as we mentioned in the intro, Adrian was the keynote speaker for our 2022 Momentum Gala celebrating the humanities. Adrian's keynote presentation was developed as part of the National Endowment for the Humanities, A More Perfect Union, a special initiative designed to demonstrate and enhance the critical role the humanities play in our nation, while also supporting projects that will help Americans commemorate the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence coming up in 2026. The initiative builds on NEH's investment over the past six decades in projects that catalog, preserve, explain, and promote American history. The NEH's A More Perfect Union initiative encourages projects that explore, reflect on, and tell the stories of our quest for a more just, inclusive, and sustainable society throughout our history. 
Here's what Adrian had to say when we asked him to reflect on how his research, books, and really all that we had discussed and shared so far helped support a more perfect union as described by the NEH. Well, there was an author who wrote a book, it was 20 years ago, um, but I, I loved the language of it, even though it's slightly depressing. But he said that um, we're a nation of strangers, familiar strangers. So we, we have some connection, right? This is, United States is a really interesting experiment, right? This is a country that's bound by ideology, not necessarily by a common heritage and other things. So we have all these people come together because they have a belief in a certain set of things, which is really being challenged right now. Mm -hmm. um, so I, um, I find joy in delving to these African-American food traditions, because one, um, I'm finding that I'm telling stories that uh, people have not really heard before. And in a lot of instances, I'm just reviving stories. Because um, well, I remember when I first took this path, I talked to older African-Americans who were in the food writing space. And they just said, you know, you know, do what you can, but this country's racist. You're not going to find that much. Um, I will say that they were, let's just say, mature and they didn't know about this new thing called the internet. And so I, uh, I was like, okay. And then I started looking on the internet and I quickly had enough information to write five books. And um, what was clear is that these people were celebrated in their time, but we, um, and we, I'm talking about African-Americans, but even broader culture, were not good about carrying these stories to the next generation. So my hope is that I can shine a light uh, and maybe get people to think about things differently by talking about food. And, and my experience is that, um, and this is related to the question you asked earlier, I find that food being at the table makes people more receptive to hard things, maybe hard conversations. Like you break some barriers down and um, I'm getting people to think about race and slavery and other things that they probably don't think about or don't want to think about. But I, I tell these stories using food that draws people in. And they're like, oh, okay. And I've even had people come up to me afterwards, people who are just not, they don't want to hear anything about black people, um, come up and say, okay, I, I knew what you were doing, but you know what, there was, you did it in a compelling way, so I still listened. I'm like, all right, if I can get you to do that, that's fine. Breaking bread and breaking barriers. Um. <laughs> and you know that you know it's powerful when people who are inclined not to listen still do. For sure. I, but I guess that's the secret recipe then is having difficult conversations over food. Yeah, having difficult conversations over food, um, and then just uh, hoping that that conversation becomes an ongoing conversation. Because we, we, we do too much one and done in our country. And I don't know how deeply the stuff seeps in. Yeah. And I think that's what we hope with, you know, the humanities. Having really deep historical-based conversations and how that comes to fruition in, like, modern day. And how do we keep having those conversations? Because just having one is not probably enough, as you said. Yeah, so. yeah. But yeah, so the, the challenge for all of us is just we have to try to figure out how to create these spaces. And um, every once in a while in my day job, I'm asked to go to churches and preach. And one of my um, more popular sermons is about setting a welcome table. 
And I just ask people to think about what tables are you setting in your life? Are you just setting tables for people you like and people you think, you know, think like you? Or are you really setting a table and inviting someone who may be a challenge and who may teach you something and maybe tell you something you don't want to hear? Are you, are you setting a table for that person? How do you feel like people respond to that? Oh, they love it. Now, do they actually do it? I don't know, but everybody's like, you know, no, they, they, people are really, you know, they're like, I needed to hear that. And I will tell you, I think the people that appreciate that sermon the most is the people who feel like they're not heard. Like the people who feel like, um, well, let me just put it this way. There are a lot of people, I think, who want to come to the table, but they're just petrified of being the bad person or saying the racist, sexist, whatever, homophobic, whatever thing. Um, you know, you gotta be a special kind of cat to come into a space where you might be the bad person. Yeah, nobody wants to be the bad person. Nobody wants to be the bad person. So what's important is to signal to somebody, you're not a bad person. We all got stuff and we're here to learn, unpack it together. It's not gonna be easy, it's gonna be messy but we have to just hold that we're all people of goodwill at some point, and we're just trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah, I think that's probably the hardest part about the human experience, right, is finding that common ground sometimes and being willing to make mistakes and to learn from them and to listen to other folks in that process. Yep. Well, if people would like to learn more about your work, where can they go? Well, I don't really like talking to people, so no, I'm just kidding. Um, I think you might be teasing there. <laughs> uh, soulfoodscholar.com is the way to find me. So I make it easy on, on social media, my website. And if you just put Soul Food Scholar, you will, you will find me. Perfect. So Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Soul Food Scholar. Well, I'll be following you after this meeting on all of your social media. Thanks. I, I need the help. I need the help. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for this conversation. I know I, um, I had a lot of aha moments and there's still so much more we could talk about. There's just so much depth in your, your books and you put so much time and effort and care into the research to tell these stories. Um, you know, and I, I really feel like this conversation embodies the humanities uh, through food, through history, culture, and tradition. So, um, I feel like you're providing this necessary platform for these untold stories, so thank you. Good to be with you. Thanks again for the invitation. You're welcome. Lisa, I'm not sure you noticed because you were the one interviewing our guest, but I was just completely engrossed into this conversation. I found myself just awkwardly staring at Adrian and intently listening. I can't blame you. I felt the same way when I was listening to him on the inaugural episode of the Hungry for Mo podcast, which was called Who Gets to Define Missouri Barbecue? It's a Missouri Humanities-supported podcast produced and distributed with 89.3 KCUR out of Kansas City, Missouri. I remember it was a great episode and thanks for giving a little shout out to that project. If anyone listening would like to check out Hungry for Mo, you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, Lisa, for leading such a powerful, insightful, and truly educational conversation with Adrian. We encourage all of you listening to check him out on social media and pick up his books. You won't regret it. It was absolutely my pleasure. Adrian was such a joy to chat with. 
Well, Caitlin, I think that about wraps up our conversation on soul food, barbecue, and more. Yes, indeed. To check out more about this year's signature series, visit mohumanities.org food. This podcast is brought to you by Missouri Humanities. Please help us share these stories by sharing episodes with your loved ones and on your social media platforms. If you're tuning in for the first time, we hope you go back and listen to our previous episodes for more stories that look at food and foodways through a humanities lens. If you're listening on an app, don't forget to follow us and leave a review. I'm Caitlin Yeager here with Lisa Carrico, and we hope you'll tune in for future episodes of Eat, Think, and Be Merry as we explore more of Missouri's foodways and edible history and connect through food. Mm-hmm.